Welcome to the Business of Criminal Law. Today I'm talking to Josh Campson about how to avoid hiring nightmare clients. Josh is a criminal defense attorney at Miller, Turetsky, Rule, and McLennan in Collegeville, Pennsylvania. Um, I've been in touch with him for many years. He used to write for Lawyerist when Lawyerist was a little bit of a different format. And um, he has also uh, run for political office. Josh is a great guy. He's got a lot of insight, and I'm excited for our conversation. Well, Josh, um, I'm so excited to talk to you. Um, You're an experienced lawyer, and uh, you've shared a lot of your wisdom with me over the years. Um, We're going to talk about those clients that you should just not hire. Tell me about, tell me about that. How did, how did you come to the realization that that's something that you should focus on? Well, uh, first of all, thanks for having me on. I am humbled that anyone would want to listen to anything I have to say as a just okay criminal defense lawyer. But, <laughs> uh, you know, I had texted you, you had asked me what's one piece of advice that I would give to criminal defense attorneys. And I had no such advice and then was having a difficult client moment and thought, you know what, this is the advice. It's trust your gut. Uh, because you're always going to have, uh, and I was teaching a CLE and going over this with somebody just the other day, and you're going to have a bad quarter or a bad week, or you're going to get a sob story and you're going to say, oh yeah, I could take this case or, oh, I should take this case. You know, the phone hasn't rung all day and I haven't been in court all week. So that must mean we're going out of business. So I should just take, you know, whoever answers or whoever picks up. Um, and then you take the case or you take it for less money than you should take it for. And inevitably, you regret it. Uh, it never, it never works out, or at least in my ten or eleven years, it's never worked out. And you always regret it, and you always kick yourself. And then about six or eight months later, you do it again. So that's this, my advice. I've done this ten thousand times. I've done it so many times. So I'm glad that I'm not the only one. Um, I want to kind of unpack some of what you just said because I think there was so much that was fantastic there. Um, there are times that you're vulnerable, right, to taking the wrong client. Um, so you identified some having a slow week. Um, what, what were some other, what are some other times that you found yourself kind of tempted to take that bad case? Uh, to me, it's almost always the sob story. Mm. Uh, you know, somebody gives me a story and I think, oh, that isn't right. Yeah. They shouldn't have those charges or whatever the case may be. And so then I take this, the case or, uh, it's either that. And in a sob story situation, it's usually, oh, you know, I can only come up with half of what you want or three quarters of what you want. And I say, ah, it's fine. You know, we'll get you on a payment plan. Always regret it. Hmm. Or it's somebody that I know isn't going to be a good match. You know, on the phone, you can tell either there's a a too severe of a mental health issue for me to want to deal with, or the person sounds like uh, not fun, like a jerk. (laughs) Uh, And and in those cases, sometimes you quote them high, right? You say, you know, and up to, and then sometimes they come up with it. And then you're like, well, okay, I guess. Yes. uh, but then sometimes you regret it anyway. You know, I really struggle to say no. Mm-hmm. I, I just don't, I almost don't have the capacity to do it. So that's exactly what I do. I'll go, yeah, I normally do this case for 5,000 and I'll quote 20. Yeah. And you're right. Sometimes they pay it. And usually actually I've gotten to the point where the, my, my don't hire me fee has gotten so high that I'm actually willing to deal with their jerkiness if they're willing to pay me that much money. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I've also gotten desperate and been like, yeah, $400 every three weeks. Yeah, I'll do your, your homicide case. Not quite that bad, but you know, but like I've done that too. Um, yeah. Uh, so you said uh, sob story. You said unreasonable payment terms. You said if you're having a slow time and so you're feeling a little bit desperate. Um, 
I have this, you know, so I've been in business, you know, doing this since 2009. So it's been 12 years. And I have like this mantra that I say to myself, like you have 12 years of data that this works. And yet every time I have a slow week, I'm like 12 years it worked. This is the week it stopped working. Do you, do you experience that? What do you do? Of course, of course. I mean, you look at the phone and you're like, oh, this hasn't rung in three hours. Am I going to, is this it? Are we packing up shop, get the oil, pour it on the computer and burn this thing to the ground or what? Yeah. And I don't, there's no good way to get over it, except as you said, to have a mantra and know like, all right, it's been going okay so far. <laughs> well, let me tell you a couple of things that I've thought about and not used all of. So one, um, I was talking to somebody else actually for this podcast, and uh, they recommended having like a loan or a line of credit as a way to say, I have this much runway to figure out these problems. Um, are, what's your feeling on debt in your firm? And, and she was kind of saying debt, I kind of, you always think of debt as a bad thing. She was kind of looking at debt as a way to avoid those desperate times when you take bad clients. What's your, what's your thoughts on that? How have you used that? Yeah, well, let me clarify that when I say desperate times, it's also usually made up desperate. Right. In other words, it is not necessarily, oh, I'm not going to be able to, it's never been, or at least not in a long, long time, been, oh, am I going to get paid this month? Right. Uh, it's usually a perception of desperation. So that's number one is to think about, okay, hold on, pump the brakes. Am I really desperate here? But in terms of debt, I have never taken on business debt. Uh, I'm in your camp. I've got enough personal debt thanks to law school that I don't need <laughs> my company to have any debt. But also, I think it's it was a point of pride in my first firm, my partner and I started that we got just kind of bootstrapped it ourselves yeah. um, with our meager savings as law clerks and then made it work. Mm. And at my current firm, uh, my, they've been around 60 years and they've never taken out a line of credit. Mm. So, but there are different mod business models too. You know, I know a guy around here who probably keeps a line of credit, if I had to guess, you know, 10 to 20 grand or somewhere in that region. And then he uses it for a lot of advertising. So, you know, look, if you're spending a ton on advertising and you want to have that cushion, because then if you get two cases a month, it's going to pay for itself. But to me, it's just a lot of gymnastics of mm. when's the payment due? What's the percentage? Am I making my nut on the uh, actual clients that I'm bringing in? It's too many things going in the air. Whereas if you eliminate the debt and live, quote unquote, within your means, you know, maybe you bring in fewer clients, but you can snowball it save the money and use it for advertising down the road, if yeah. that's your business model. That's really, that's wise. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point that it, if it's fundamentally a psychological problem, no amount of credit or even cash in the bank is going to solve that problem, right? Like if you're just, like my body chooses to be anxious about certain things and I don't always know how to fix that. And so, um, yeah, so if it's a psychological problem, I need to get a therapist. I don't need to, to get a line of credit. Um, so, so that's one way that has been suggested. Um, in poor cash flow businesses like personal injury, it seems like lines of credit have more of a role. Criminal defense is so cash flow positive that, yeah, I, I've never had to take on significant debt and, uh, and I hope not to. So I don't think that's a universal rule, but it's worked well for me. Um, do you do personal injury? I forget. My uh, firm does a little bit of it. We just brought yeah. someone in to handle that. I don't do it either, but I agree that that is definitely how they operate a lot more ups and downs with the cash flow, but also with experts and all the stuff you need to lay into a case that, hey, if you can borrow it at three or four or 5%, you're going to get a 500% or a thousand percent, you know, ROI, then it's not right. a bad idea. Right. And if it takes two years to get paid on a personal injury case, that's just a tough cash flow gap to bridge. Right. Um, so the other way that I've thought about uh, kind of having, you know, avoiding that stress is, is just having cash in the bank. And that sounds like kind of what 
what you have leaned toward. Um, if like a business consultant came into your business, what do you think they would say about the amount of cash that you have just like on hand? I think they say it's fine. Yeah. And we keep, uh, I, I think we try to keep, in my old firm when I was, you know, one or two attorneys, we tried to keep about three months, at least maybe six months of salary and expenses in there. Uh, and then every quarter pay out bonuses. And in my current firm, we probably keep three to four months. I mean, it's a much bigger firm, 10 or 11 employees. So it's more cash on hand, but we keep some of it in a money market. So it makes like, you know, a tiny bit more interest. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but it's still easy to bring over. Yeah. Um, so, we, you know, I think we keep plenty of cash on hand and then do disbursements as possible. But I am someone, even in my personal life, keep plenty of liquid assets because you never know what's going to happen. I'm a yeah. worrier. Yeah, same here. And so we, we have, I think if a business consultant came into mind, they'd say, there's a, we could buy this and we could do this and we could make so much more money. And it just helps me sleep at night to have a nice cushion. Um, the third strategy I've heard is to sort of have a day job that you just can count on. And in criminal, that's usually having like public defense contracts or however your state handles appointment. Um, have you done too much on like the uh, contract basis, public defense, that kind of stuff? Oh, yeah. I mean, look, if you can do it, absolutely. It depends on the business model of the county you're in. Yeah. Uh, so when I first started out, we did two counties. Uh, one county paid, what did they do? They did a, they started as hourly and then they switched to a wackadoodle system where they would pay you like three grand a month. And then in the year, you had a cap of 50 cases. Mm. But then even though the contracts had cases, the court looked at it as clients. Mm. So if one client had a homicide and the next client had seven DUIs, that was two cases. Oh, gosh. Uh, so when they switched to that system, I think we rode that out for a few months and then ditched it. Uh, but then there was another county south of us where they were paying uh, attorneys by the hour. And they were paying them like 65 or $70 an hour. It was pretty decent for court appointment work uh, rate, not cutting the bills, you know, paying whatever was asked. And the attorneys down there, very small county, were just fleecing them. Yeah. I mean, they were we were friends with the commissioner and, you know, somebody had charged like 10 grand on a case pre-trial. Um, and so we came in and approached the commissioners and said, hey, we're going to here's a better deal. You pay us a flat fee for X number of cases. I don't remember what the details were. And then anything over that number, we'll do a reduced hourly rate. Anyway, had a whole situation sorted. I was mutually beneficial. So we did that for a long time. And then um, when I came out to Eastern Pennsylvania, I got on the conflict list here in Montgomery County, as well as the, uh, Chester County has a contract situation where it's a salary, uh, not a salary, but a, you know, a monthly stipend, but there's no maximum number of cases. Mm. So in that situation, you just have to have enough bodies because you can only be in one pl place at a time. As right. a solo, it's difficult. Right. Right. So you've, <clears throat> so initially when I started my practice, we applied for some public defense jobs, <clears throat> contract jobs, and just didn't get them. And it was such a hassle to apply. It's kind of like you, where you had to like do like an RFP and you'd had to, it was so complicated that we got sick of doing it. And we just never got any. So I'm huh. a little bit jealous of guys who kind of go, look, I can pay my rent with this. And then I, my private cases are sort of, you know, if they're, they come, they're nice, but they don't have to come. Uh, but we don't have, I've never had any public defense contracts. Um, and I'm a little bit jealous of people who do. So I have to, <laughs> I ha if I have expenses this month, I've got to hire clients have to hire me to pay them. Um, so that's cool. I'm glad that that's worked out so well for you. And, and something that I like too, is that you are so creative in the ways that you're willing to work with them. You didn't say, look, if it's not $170 an hour, I'm not going to do it. You, you, you know, it sounds like you had a pretty creative approach to those 
the business problem that the counties had, and, and that gave you kind of an edge in being able to work with them. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you have to know, because really what you're doing is saying, hey, the system you've had for a long time isn't beneficial to you. And it's certainly not beneficial to me because I'm getting none of the money. Yeah. So any amount of money that you're getting for the firm is a, be- is a benefit. Um, and then, of course, the other area that we have not been able to get into either, and I don't know if you have, is the CJA panels. Oh, no, I have not. Yeah. I don't know who I have to kill to get on those, but <laughs> those are, I mean, those are, I've heard you can just have a whole firm doing just CJA work. I've seen it. Um, yeah. I mean, I applied, you know, three or four times when I was first starting out, it was a huge pain and now I don't apply anymore. And do you, so do you feel, so it sounds like you've got a kind of a combination of you've got cash and then you've also got these kind of regular business that you can kind of count on. And that helps you kind of stave off the panic um, a little bit when you start to get anxious. Um, are you glad that you're still doing public defense work? Do you plan to for the next 30 years? What's your long-term vision for that? Oh, yeah. Well, right now, so I don't, I ditched the uh, monthly one because that was too time intensive in the county where it was. So they have a lot of status conferences. So it'd be almost every day you're in court half the day and then you can't make any money. But so now we just do the one county and they just pay you by the case and it's a flat fee. Um, so it's really not, you know, maybe it's 10 or 15 grand a year. It's not much going on and you only get paid at the end of the case. So it'll come in waves and during COVID nothing, no cases have been resolving. So they're, it's kind of just all sitting out there. Uh, I mean, I'm probably always going to stay on the list. I think it's very important mm. because people need to do, you know, what I would call low bono in that situation. Yeah. Uh, now is it just to roll the dice until one day they're going to slam me with a homicide and then I'm going to regret it. Um, <laughs> Cause you still get paid the same, you know, $3,000 right. or $5,000 or whatever. Yikes. Yeah. That's uh, it's not going to be ideal, but you know, from a cost benefit analysis, the number of hearings you do that are just a simple assault and you get them done pretty efficiently, it's fine. And also, again, as I said, very important that I think yeah. people get good representation. Not that the other people on the list aren't giving good representation, but I think at least in this area, there are people who kind of look at it as like graduating and no longer having to do that. Yeah. And even though we don't have to do it, I still think it's important. And I like to stay on the list so that when we have junior attorneys come in, um, you know, I can send them to some hearings or bring them to hearings with me, get them on the list. They get a little bit of experience, but I can oversee it. So I, I think it's important. That's fantastic. So you said, okay, so so one way to avoid hiring these nightmare clients is to have your bills paid so that you're not in that desperate situation. Um, what, how do you deal with the sob story? Um, it sounds like you're a very kind of kind-hearted person. You've got a high sense of responsibility to the community and to the bar. Um do you think that it's a good thing that you can be taken by a by a sob story, or what's your feelings about that? Yeah, sometimes. I mean, it depends on the story and how sobby it is, because <laughs> uh, some of them are sob stories in the sense of it activates my criminal justice. Mm. You know, what do you mean they did a search for that reason, uh, kind of situation, or you know, the grandma that calls because the grandson is in jail and nobody will listen and that kind of thing. I mean, it depends on the sob story anymore. You know, I do criminal uh, defense and I also do child welfare representing parents mm. whose kids are in the foster system. Mm. For a criminal case to activate my sob story, me to take it, it's got to be a pretty unique scenario. Um, and I'm using the term sob story for really any story that gets me to take their case when I shouldn't. Uh, <laughs> and, and anymore, that's usually not a sob situation. It's not a sad situation. It's usually an angry situation, yeah. me angry at the system. Yeah. I, I, I've done appeals on my own cases when I was just ticked off at the prosecutor 
and just like, it was so much work, so much time, so much stress, and I didn't charge for it at all. And I just did it out of rage and indignation. And I'm kind of glad that I did. Like, I'm, I'm glad that I have like a line that I'm not going to let certain prosecutors cross. Um, so just hearing the stories has kind of given you a better sense of when it's legitimately something that you care about enough that you want to take this client versus, you know, just the sad stories that, you know, they're unfortunately, they're very common in criminal cases, but you've kind of developed some immunity to those. Yes. And now that I'm at a bigger firm and a you know a partner responsible for paying all these salaries, I keep my Microsoft Teams open and I see the list of all the people that I have to be responsible for uh, and think about that. Some people keep a picture of their family or something on their desk, especially yeah. if they're solo. Uh, but uh, now I've got this whole team that I have to worry about. So I, I think of them and, okay, great. If I take this case and I'm going to be shouldering the work or putting the work off onto somebody else, you know, is that really fair? Is that a good business decision, et cetera? Yeah. The old classic book on starting a firm was that Foonberg book. Um, yeah. And I think that was one. Of, I, there were a lot of things that I kind of disagreed with, but that was one that I thought was pretty powerful. Like put a picture of your family on your desk facing you, not facing the client. And when you're tempted to be like, I'm just going to do all this work for free. Remember that you've got bills to pay and mouths to feed. So that's a good recommendation. Um, here's my quick uh, sob, sob story. story. Um, I don't watch legal shows, but my wife was into the, uh, the good wife and she kind of pulled me in on it okay. and, um, and we were watching it and these people would come to her with ridiculous stories. Like they would be found with like a bloody knife over their dead husband and they just threatened to kill him the day before. And they'd come to her and they'd be like, I'm innocent. I didn't do this. And she would always believe them. And so while we were watching it, I started feeling guilty because I don't believe my clients when they tell me that kind of stuff. Like, I'm like, let me see the police report first, you know? So I had this uh, elementary school teacher come and she's like, I've been charged with theft, but it's just because I happened to walk out at the same time as this other lady and I'm innocent of this. And I was like, oh, I've been watching The Good Wife. This is my <laughs> chance. So I took the case and for not enough money. And then I got the police report and she had like confessed to the police and they found the, the stolen shoes in the dumpster with the tag still on it. And she was on video. Like it was like the worst case, but um, she got me, she got me with her. I'm a teacher and they're, they're targeting me. So. Yeah. You know, funny thing about that good wife show. I don't watch it either, but I have seen like one episode and it takes place in Pennsylvania, right? Or in Philly area. I thought it was Chicago, but it's been years. Uh, maybe I'm thinking of a different show. No, no, I'm thinking of uh, a different lawyer show where it's like the whole thing is completely unrealistic. The show doesn't, it's like a woman and then she's got like interns or law students that work for her. That's not the good wife. It might maybe. be. Again, I watched like a season and a half, but. And, and they, uh, so the whole thing's unrealistic, but then they go to a jail and they ask for their bar card to go into the jail. So that's like super realistic. And the bar card that they use is an actual Pennsylvania bar card. It looks exactly <laughs> like it. The rest of the show, they couldn't care less about what the real world's like. But they, They're like, they we got to nail that. Oh, card. that's so yeah. funny. I love that. Yeah, the I've props had to- guy sorted that out. I've had to show my card many, many times. In the early days, I had to show my card a lot because the uh, bailiffs wouldn't let me pass the bar because they didn't think I was a lawyer. They're like, you're too young. And so they like card me. Uh, but I don't get that anymore. Having kids has really aged me. So nobody yes. loves to challenge me on that anymore. Um, so uh, tell me what it feels like when you know you shouldn't take a client. Like you say, trust your gut, but like, is it in your stomach? Like what, you know, as much as you can, what is, how do you recognize that feeling? 
Oh, no, it's, I don't know about for you, but for me, it's absolutely in my gut. It's literally uh, that gut feeling of, hmm, I know I probably shouldn't do this, but I'm just going to do it anyway. Mm. And then the nice feeling six months later, where you're like, yep, shouldn't have done it. Uh, you know. <laughs> but, but you did it, right? That's but I did it. Yep, I did it. Right. Yeah, yeah, I, uh, yeah. And I do try to remind myself of that. Like, think of future you. Right. And what, what's future Josh going to say about this decision? when you're thinking about taking this case, because future Josh is never going to, or very, very unlikely to regret not taking a case. Um, you only regret taking it, but it does feel like a pit in your stomach, you know? Well, I, I didn't believe that. I believe that what you just said now, but I did not believe that for years. And so when, when I imagined future Josh Barron, I would think, what if I can't pay my mortgage? Right. And the reason I didn't was because I was so selfish that I didn't want to take this annoying client. And that never happened. But what did happen was I'd have the super annoying client and I would get like my ideal client call, but I'd be in like some contentious motion hearing or, you know, something crazy, spending all this time on this case and I couldn't call them back and I didn't get the case. And that case would have paid seven times what this case paid, you know? So, um, yeah, I, I didn't believe that for years. And now I really do. Like, the, to me, it's like I always err on the side of not taking it or quoting such a high fee that they go away because those great cases are so much more valuable than all those little cases that you think you need to pay the bills. And more enjoyable. Right, right. Like you're, you're so much more energized to work on those cases. Do you have like a really clear picture of what those like ideal cases are for you or how do you what – what are the ones that you're looking for? You know, I've stumbled into a practice area of child abuse cases mm. and violent sex crime. Mm. So those cases are tough, but I yeah. am fine handling them. Yeah. I don't wouldn't say they're my ideal. I mean, the ideal is really, you know, like a tricky theft or a tricky homicide, you know, where there's some legal argument to be made and some factual argument. Those are more fun. Mm. Uh, but anymore, that tends to be my demographic is the sex cases. And really, even those, usually there's pretty good – there's either no factual issues or a ton of factual issues. Mm, mm. Uh, it's rare that there's a legal issue. So, you know, there and there is a significant overlap with those offenses, people that are charged with them, and people who can afford criminal defense lawyers. Right, right. This is a problem so big that they're willing to figure out your fee. Right. Um, and do you feel like knowing what those great cases look like and feel like helps you when you're getting pitched on this terrible case that you should absolutely reject? Probably. Um, I, I think. To me, the terrible cases that I should reject, I'm never rejecting because the evidence is overwhelming or it sounds like the person is guilty or whatever. I'm rejecting them because the person on the other end sounds like someone I don't want to work with. <laughs> and I mean, you know how it is, especially if you go to a trial. I mean, you're going to have to be spending a lot of time with this person. Yes. And they're going to be sitting next to you in trial. And if they sound like a jerk that you're not going to want to work with or the kind of person that's going to call you every day, even though you told them I'll call you next week, whatever the case may be, you know, that's more the situation where I wouldn't take a case. It's almost never, with the exception of animal abuse, it's almost never the substance of the case that I'm turning down. That's interesting. So I think I've heard you say that before, that animal abuse is this kind of special category that you're thumbs down on. I, you know, I just, I've never taken one. Uh, I did take one recently that um, I regretted. And again, sob story, former client situation. But I, I don't know why. I think it's just... Well, first of all, you can't cross-examine an animal, right? So they're harder to defend. I think people on a jury look at them even worse than child abuse mm. uh, because a kid 
you know, okay, you can meet the kid. Maybe they're an adult now. There's a lot of factors involved. And when you get into the animal abuse, you got to look at a lot of pictures. And with child abuse, you really don't. So it's just a lot harder to deal with for me, at least. I don't know. Maybe I'm weird that to me, everything else is easy, but animal abuse never, I don't like, I don't care for it. I think you're right in terms of the jury. Um, my business partner, who's now a novelist, he'd say, if I have, if I have a villain who I want to make people really hate, I have to kill a dog and everybody hates him. Like, so yep. it's not like for some reason that really triggers something in us. And I think that, I, I mean, my feeling too, is like, you should give yourself permission to say like these kinds of cases, I'm just not going to be as good at, I'm too emotionally invested in and, and, uh, and step away from them and maybe find somebody else. Like I, I know uh, attorneys who just absolutely won't take violent sex cases. Um, right. And then others that don't mind. I, I do a lot of them too. And I don't mind that. And so um, I think that it's, I think it's very, I think it's probably healthy to just like allow yourself those preferences and then just kick butt on the cases that you are best at. And then there's the other cases that are just boring. Right. You know, like I'll, I'll take a license suspension case, but I don't advertise for it because I think they're boring Ugh, and they're all the same. the same way. Yeah. DUIs for me. I am so sick of DUIs. I did so many DUIs as a prosecutor. I've done so many DUIs on the defense side. I think I can do a good job on them, but I'm not excited about them. And there's other guys that it's all they do. They, all they do is DUIs and they are excited about them. They love to figure out like how the intoxilizer machine works and stuff. And I'm just like, Oh, I'm, you know, I'll do them, but it's got to, the stars sort of have to align. Right, exactly. Like the phone has to ring and they have to have the, the fee you want. I mean, DUIs are also usually pretty straightforward, but sometimes right. they're not. And then sometimes all of a sudden you not. get into one and I'm like, oh God, this is too much for me. This is too much science. <laughs> I'd like them to be more unstraightforward more often. It's the, the cases that I find super boring are the ones where, you know, it was an accident and they did a blood draw and there are five substances in their system. And it's like, what are we going to do? Yeah. Uh, those are fun. Um, I, uh, you've sparked so many ideas in me. I feel like I might've talked too much in this episode. It's been really fun for me. What's your, do you have any, anything that we haven't covered about how to avoid, uh, taking those bad cases? No, it really is. You know, it's really your gut, I think. And it's also, it comes with experience, some of it, but again, you know, you really have to think if you're a new solo or newly in this world of running a firm, maybe you are PD or whatever the case may be you know, even if you've never represented a client before, you know what people are like, and you've been around people for at least 25, 30 years. And I think it's really important to know that the clients that hire you, uh, you have to work with them. So you have to think, is this someone I want to work with? Is it not regardless, almost regardless of the money? Mm. Oh, and the other tip there is if somebody says money's not an issue, you're never getting paid. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I have had that happen so many times. I get so excited when they say money's not an issue. And then money is the first issue and the second issue and the third issue and the fourth issue. And, you know, another red flag for that just popped into my head for when you're figuring out, is this person going to hire me or are they going to be a problem client when you're doing the consult and I do mine on the phone or on zoom. And, you know, you get to the point in the interaction where they've explained the facts, you've explained how you can help them. And you turn to uh, make the sales pitch and you say, okay, my fee for this is going to be $5,000. Is that something you think you'd be interested in or however you say it? If they then pivot and change the subject, you're never getting paid on that case either. Get off the call. It's not happening. Wrap it up. (laughs) Yeah. You know, what's funny is that I feel the same about those two responses. The one that um, 
I think traditional salespeople would say is a heck no, and you're never going to hear from them again, but I always do, is I need to check with my wife or I need to check with my husband. Oh, yeah. Often they call me back an hour later and pay the fee. Right. Um, but, you know, I think so. I partly by nature and partly by design, I'm not super pressury when I'm talking to people about potentially hiring me. Um, and I've wondered what salespeople would think about that. But I feel like salespeople would say, oh, if they have to talk to their wife, that's a no. But it almost they almost always hire me. I don't know. That's been a good one for me. Yeah. Well, and you want the spouse on board. Yeah. Because you don't want a spouse that's, oh, you should have hired Joe that I talked to you about. Oh, that'll, that, now you've got a problem client again. Yeah. Right. Any other magic, like they're likely going to hire you? What, what do you, what, uh, likely going to hire you? Mm. Um, uh, no, usually something along the lines of, oh, I've read all your reviews or, mm. oh, I saw you on YouTube or whatever. If they've done the actual like research instead of just Googled criminal defense lawyer and clicked your name, mm. if they say that they know who you are or that kind of thing, um, they're more likely to hire you. If they yeah. laugh at one of your jokes, I, I do tend to make jokes. Uh, so, you know, I don't know if that's good or bad, but I do try to at least lighten the mood because what we deal with is so heavy most it's of the time. so heavy. I have not, I mean, I, I'm really curious. How do you use humor in an, you're talking about the initial client consultation. They'll tell a yeah. joke. Oh, yeah. Oh, because usually it'll be like, oh, you know, somebody so-and-so said you're a really good lawyer. And I say, well, I don't know about good, but at least good looking um, or that kind of thing. You know, or when I deprecating exactly, yeah, as uh, uh, that's uh, what I do. It's it's always self deprecating humor, but you got to be careful because you don't want to make them think that you're not good, right? Um, but you know, that's the that's the kind of joke that I would make, and my wife would be in the background rolling her eyes, yes, because uh, she's heard you know, that one, <laughs> she's heard that one, and you know, I'll also make jokes. I mean, I try to bring humor everywhere, I'll make jokes during a jury trial, yeah, because uh, I think again, everything is so heavy that it's good to lighten the mood. And then the other one I do is uh, one of my stocks and people could take this and use it unless they're in the, Mon the Philadelphia area and then they can't. It's but, you know, if I'm good. talking to someone on the phone, I'll say, oh yeah, you know, da -da -da, they hire me. Um, and then I'll tell them, cause usually I'm not meeting in person and I'll say, oh yeah, you know, wave me down at the hearing. Don't let me flail around like an idiot. I'll be the bald guy with a bow tie. And you should have a beard. Now I have a mustache, but I'd say like, uh, I'll be the bald guy with a beard and a bow tie. And, you know, people think that it's not really a joke. People think it's very silly that I say that. But then I show up and I'm like, oh, yeah, you are wearing a bow tie. And I'm like, yeah, that's the whole thing. Uh, I like how alliterative that sentence was. I'm the bald guy with a beard and a bow tie. Yeah. Wow. The mustache doesn't fantastic. flow as well with that. But this yeah. is just my summer look. I like it. I like it. Can't wait for the beard to come back. Yeah. Ah, uh, Josh, your fount of wisdom. Thank you so much for teaching us how to avoid terrible clients. Um, man, not, there's like probably no lower leverage way to improve your practice than just avoiding the bad clients. Yeah. Well, it's the 80, 20 rule too. Cause you're going to spend 80% of your time on the 20% of your clients that you don't feel like dealing with. And then you're going to hate the time you're spending with them. How should people get more of you in their lives? What would you like them to do? Yeah. So you can always go to, uh, which is my law firm. I don't know why, unless you're list unless you want a lawyer, I don't know why you would go there. So I don't know why I started with that, but <laughs> Really, if you want more of me in your life, uh, you can follow me on Instagram. I'm jo at, at Josh Camps, an attorney. And most importantly, you can listen to my podcast where we've had uh, guests such as uh, Joshua Barron and form, uh, current Congresswoman Madeline Dean. We've had comedian Robin Hitchcock. We've had internet guru Sam Malai. We've had a lot of people on there. Uh, it's not as good as this podcast, less content, more fluff, but come check it out. And that's called Interrogatories with Josh Campson. 
I was just going to say that I was really scared to do this interview because you're such a good interviewer that I was nervous that I would just, you'd be like, oh, this is the worst. And I'm sure you are. And you don't need to respond to that. But um, you are a fantastic interviewer and it is a very interesting and entertaining uh, conversation show. And so I, I highly recommend it. And I appreciate you having me on your podcast. I appreciate you having me on here. I think it's been good. And I think you're totally fine. You got much more substance than I have in probably all 20 episodes that I've done so far. <laughs> Josh, come back anytime. This has been fun. I will. Thanks very much.